3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunrung people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. Welcome. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement, and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. It's the 2nd of March. Can you believe it? Good morning and welcome back, Judith. Excited to have you back in the studio this morning. Great to be here and look, a big thank you to Beyond Zero Emissions who've had uh, yet another great show bringing us up to date around climate change, what's been happening. So, uh, yeah, good to hear them this morning. Yeah. So, how are you going this I mean, rain this morning coming in? Yeah, it feels like the season's turning. It's suddenly a little darker in the mornings. It was, <laughs> and a little bit cooler this morning. It's quite warm yesterday, but I think it's going to be about 18, 19, 20, something, something around there. Today. Yeah, I thought I saw 16. Oh, you didn't? Oh, my God. I, just couldn't, yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't quite bring myself to say that. <laughs> I've got into the habit of it with Monday breakfast. You never know how it is. Yeah. <laughs> you leave the house at five. Yeah. So how's your week been, Ella? What have you been up to? Yeah, very good. Um, so I had a very unsuccessful garage sale on the weekend. Oh, um, look, they're really a mixed, mixed bag, they are. Yeah, I wasn't sure if they were becoming a thing of the past. Everyone goes online. But um, we had a good time anyway. Yeah, that's the main thing, isn't it? Lots of fun. Yeah. yeah, just enjoyed a bit of sun yesterday. Every time we have a hot day now, I wonder if it's going to be the last one. So you get that feeling where you've got to make yeah. the most of it. <laughs> yeah, I made sure I did all my washing. Washing's a big thing for me because yes. I really like the freshness of hanging your clothes out to dry. So, uh, yeah, definitely do the washing. And, um, and then I went to the Sydney Road Festival. Oh, that you got along. I meant to go, but I never quite got there. Yeah, it was good. Well, I see? went because I was uh, in a Tai Chi demonstration. Oh, we yeah. had, had a stall there, the Taoist Tai Chi Society. So we um, yeah, just stood in, in the middle of the road. And did Tai Chi. Oh, that sounds nice. <laughs> it was, and people I was thinking were, it might be a bit hectic at Sydney Road Festival, but, but that sounds well, very manageable. Right. <laughs> and, you know, what was really interesting is how many people kind of knew a bit of Tai Chi. You know, they'd go, go by, they'd see us, and they'd kind of turn their hands. and Or some people just, you know, imitating what we're doing. So <laughs> it was good. Anyway, lots of people came by and said hello. And, um, yeah, next weekend there's a, a whole weekend where you can learn 108 moves. Oh, 108 in one weekend. Wow. Well, two days. It's actually two days, yes. <laughs> so some people were interested. So, yeah, so that was good. Uh, and then I came home and took the washing off the line. Yeah, sounds like a nice Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good Sunday. It was. Yeah. And what have you been doing with yourself the last few months since we heard from you last year? Oh, um, well, you know, some broadcasting, some... Uh, travel. I went down to Adelaide and caught up with some friends. I had a road trip, which was really nice. A friend was visiting from Adelaide and he said, why don't you drive back with me? And I thought, yeah, good. Why not? Yeah, yeah. and uh, over two days so it was very relaxed. Went along the Great Ocean Road and 
was reminded of those those beautiful parts of Victoria. And and of course you go and come by with it come you finish up with you know I I've got to get out there more often because <laughs> it is just so lovely. Yeah, as soon as you get out there, it's always like that. You think why don't I do it yeah, every weekend? It's so refreshing. It's not that hard. <laughs> I know it's just so good for the you know body and soul. I think yeah. So and that's it. Catching up with family, friends. Um, yeah, been yeah relaxed. Lovely. And, um, yeah, we had some very good news last week, which has brought you back with us today. Indeed. Right? Yes, I mean, I was just having that moment of, I need to start thinking about now when I come back. And there was that announcement that Equinor had withdrawn from the great Australian <laughs> bite. It's not going to drill there. And uh, within seconds of hearing that, I sent out an email <laughs> to Monday. Have you got room for me on Monday? Because we've got to interview Peter Owen about this. We've covered it so much over the last uh, year. So, yeah, so we will yeah. be hearing from Peter around 8 this morning. Yeah, it was um, very fortuitous to get your email. I thought I'd be flying solo behind the mic yeah. when you asked. Say, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was very welcomed, I must say. Yeah, thank you for that. And what else have we got on this morning? Now? Yeah, so elsewhere on the show, it's a bit of a gender-themed week. Um, so in a little while, we're going to hear from Dr. Donna Bridges. Uh, Donna's a professor in sociology, and she spoke with Claudia about gender in the workplace. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Then we're going to listen to a chat I had with Emma McGuire. Um, so I got in touch with Emma after reading an article she wrote for The Conversation, uh, which sort of looked at the way that society criticizes and also applauds women's success and how movements that describe themselves as feminist movements, uh, like the lean-in movement, uh, girl bossing, that kind of uh, thing, and the ways in which that can be problematic for a lot of women and excludes women from So with International Women's Day coming up on the weekend, on Sunday, I think it is, this is, yeah, I think we're, our, our heads are very much <laughs> in that space this morning. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, when I was reading Emma's article, it kept reminding me of a talk I went to last year as a part of um, the Broadside Conference. Such um, a good conference. Yeah, great, great conference, and I really enjoyed it. I went to a panel discussion called Rage Against the Machine, um, it yeah. was unpacking sort of feminism, capitalism, and mm. the ways in which we conflate the two. Um, and it, yeah, touched a lot of the same areas that Emma did. So we're going to have a listen to that talk and then, yeah, listen to my talk. That was so much fun. So many people from Monday, Monday Brekkie got out to that conference. Yeah, yeah, I had Alice yeah. sitting next to me and I think there are a few others mixed in the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there was a line-up. It was so exciting because there was a line-up, you know, in front of the State Library all the way around the corner. People yeah, oh, dying to get into a feminist conference. Quite <laughs> yes. the turnout. Yes. yes. Nice to see the both yes. events I've been um, yeah. to recently. There's a good queue around the blocks so. yeah <laughs> and then then right beside us when i was there there was a, a preacher trying to invite us all to you know join in <laughs> but and, and he was so excited all these women you know <laughs> he could convert but uh, I, I think he was uh, yeah, definitely with the wrong group no. lots of jokes and um, yeah, anyway, yeah, he, he, was, swayed, he was sincere. <laughs> That's the main bit. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, no, I didn't know takers, not that day. <laughs> yeah. All right, should we get started with the song he's into Monday morning? Yes, well, yeah, and in honor of, you know, International Women's Day coming up, we're going to hear from three strong women who make up Oitha, our Earth. Uh, the heart acknowledges that's what Oetha stands for. So we have uh, Lady Lash and uh, Miss Hood and Dizzy D with Cruisin'. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. 
my sisters, pumping up the beats. All black members, I click on the street. Pop, pop, in the back speaker. I'm sitting low with my fresh pair of sneakers. I'm marinating in my liquor, yeah, I'm thicker than my other sisters. We just like the pictures of a Mona Lisa hanging smoke from my mouth. Riding low, sipping, gripping grain in the south. Family for life, this one thing that I fight for. Dedicate this to my baby girl, firstborn. I wear my collars on the inside. Just sit back, enjoy the nightlife. When we ride, I confess the words that I bless. Straight up, unlimited destinations. Looking real deadly for a special occasion. Exclusive, sister girl, hip hop and Asian. Hands on the wheel and the wind in my head. Kicking it with my girls, cause we just don't care. We're beautiful, we're black, and we about to get loud. So turn up the music and let's roll out. Get my titties in the back, and we're heading to the south. Showing you all what a black woman is about. We got the QLD, SA, and VIC. Lady Lab, Miss Hood, and the D-I-Double-Z. This is an incredible exclusive production. Music is a passion, it's the way that we function. Awitha, coming at you with full force. Awitha, are we too deadly? Of course. future generations, each moment's priceless, it's why we live from borrowed times, press rewind to rewire your memories of fun, better days with your family in the sun, show me soaking up the rays and leaving the worries and troubles behind, can y'all feel that, that's called fulfillment, got me and Lady Lash, you dizzy doing the column in the net, we killing a miss, the old sound bringing it back, speaking on behalf of the masses, how Australia where you at, close up with the got your back. Was Uitha with Cruzen and, and um, yeah, the, the sort of the uh, video that goes with that track just shows those fabulous women cruising down the road, with, literally with the wind in their hair, and it's yeah, it's pretty special. Ah, oh, I'll have to take a look. It came out last year. Yeah. Six years I've been 
Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 And now we're going to take a listen to the panel discussion I attended last year, uh, Rage Against the Machine, Feminism and Capitalism. Uh, so the panel featured four very accomplished women, uh, Aminautau Sal, Fatima Bhutto, Gia Tolentino, Tressie McMillan-Cotton, and it was hosted by Santilla Shingepe. Tressie, if I can come to you. Last night in Sydney, when we were in conversation with Mona, you made a very interesting point about you're not interested in the gender pay gap conversation, which corporate feminism seems to be obsessed with. And I thought that your response was, was quite pertinent to today's conversation. I was curious if you could reflect on that a little bit more and, and, and why um, you're more interested in the conversation around ensuring that um, you know, we're not reinforcing inequality. Well, if the only way that we understand uh, justice, which is what I understand, any sort of feminist womanist movement uh, that is not centered um, in the very narrow U.S.-centric vein of uh, feminism, um, which can actually be a quite a historical uh, um, vein, the only... The, the, the argument in the intellectual histories to which I subscribe have always talked about uh, justice and redistribution and cooperative power, right? Um, you can't get to any of those conversations by only understanding yourself as an economic subject, right? That in fact, the minute you adopt the language of economics being your value, your, your worth to a society, you adopt all of the racist, patriarchal, settler, colonialist uh, ideologies that are embedded in the system of exchange. And so I think a narrow focus on wages then does a couple of things. First, it allows very wealthy women to do nominal representation work for poorer women, even as they use poorer women to remain wealthy. Mm -hmm. As I said, yes, I'm very much in favor of my housekeeper being paid a livable wage, right? Um, but then let's talk about what a housekeeper allows you to do. 
Does it allow a Reese Witherspoon, I don't mind either, (laughs) (laughs) you know, a Sheryl Sandberg to organize a system of work and distribution that reinforces an unequal inheritance of wealth and privilege? Yes, yes, it does. Now, at the same time, I can say we live in the system, and until we blow the whole thing up, pay people enough to live and eat, but let's not understand the movement through that language because it delimits our imagination. And what feminism has always been about when it gets it right is reimagining the entire system of social organization. One where I can have absolutely no economic value and still have human value. Mm. That's feminism. Mm. So. That is a feminism to me that accounts for some of the most powerful feminist work coming from disabled feminists, for example, that says, I want a system where my body does not have to be productive to an economic regime that will still allow me to be humane, right? For you to still see me as a productive human being. That to me is a powerful discourse that has very little purchase when we narrow an understanding of feminism to a set of policies that have to take necessarily their priors that the only way to get there are through the existing policy regimes. So then we'll talk about wages and we'll talk about, you know, whether or not people need two weeks off every year or four. By the way, we should have 18. (laughs) (laughs) If I'm just throwing policy prescriptions out there. Um, Right, all very maybe meaningful sort of short-term things, but that is actually not to me a conversation about feminism. That's a conversation to me about uh, citizenship perhaps and certainly social policy. Um, But that's what narrowing the conversation to wages does. It allows some sort of nominal solidarity without any actual solidarity. It delimits our imagination about how to be something more than an economic cog in the wheel. And frankly, it proliferates and sells to the rest of the world upon whom neoliberalization has depended to extract labor. We then turn around and sell back to them the idea of being good economic subjects. And so then what we take is from the rest of the world where feminism is doing exactly what radical feminism was supposed to do, which is reimagine the future, and we start to sell them on the idea of a student loan on a job, on getting an internet connection. All lovely things, maybe, depending on who you are, but we then get to turn them into a market, right, which, which then blunts the radical potential of, fe- of feminism among the very people who are doing feminism's most important work. So I think this narrow focus on wages just excuses a lot of people um, and makes our cultural imagination very poorer for it. I guess all of that said, and I want to direct this question to all of you, um, is it possible then to be a feminist and anti-capitalist? I think Aminata, you talked about your own complicity um, within that, but I, but I do wonder, is it, is it possible, if, if, if we are thinking about this reimagining of feminism? To be feminist and anti-capitalist? Yeah, I would say that it's, uh, yeah, to, to me it's almost like one in, one in the same. I mean, that being said, like I... Like, like Tressie was saying, we do, we live in a society, you know, I mean, I, many of the, like, I think it's a, the idea, like something like, let's say fight for 15, right? It's like, this is improving people's lives strictly within, you know, as economic subjects, right? But to me, what that fight illuminates is that 
this is what capitalism at this stage makes of us. You know, like the, the end, the end point of it is, is always anti-capitalist for me. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, I think also it's, it can't be, it's not, it shouldn't be feminism unless it is suspicious of power yeah. and how that operates. Yeah. So whether that's capitalism, whether that's state power, yeah. um, you know, I mean, I always find it, I always find it jarring when we're told to celebrate things like the fact that the head of the CIA is now a woman. You know, congratulations. Yeah. Why do we, you know, why, why we're supposed to celebrate a waterboarder because she's a woman now, or you know, in America at least, I think if not five out of five, four out of the top five, the largest defense companies in America are run by women now. I mean, I don't. That's not progress. That's also yeah. not an accident. That's you not an accident. Mean, right? yeah. I think that Absolutely. that's also, there are certain industries that thrive on putting people who look a certain way Absolutely. in certain jobs to seem that they are bulletproof. And so Absolutely. that doesn't, that doesn't surprise me in, in the least. But I also think that we, and Gia has said this so many times, we all, this idea that we are supposed to, there is nowhere in, you know, like if there is a feminist Bible somewhere or, uh, you know, like if, if somehow, if somewhere we signed a contract that this something is feminism, it never once said that anything a woman does is feminist. Yeah. So where this idea is from is very, it concerns me a lot that this is a message that people have internalized. Well, and like fully co-opted and weaponized, yes. right? Like that's the, And yeah. you're like, yeah, I'm like, just, I'm. You know, I'm like, the point is, yeah, that, that's not the point to me. And I don't know where that comes from, but it really, I am deeply concerned that that is a thing that people believe because that is just another way of blunting the instrument of saying, well, yeah, it's if a we... very powerful and like typical um, neutralizing mm -hmm. tactic, right? So, um, uh, which Gia has written very beautifully about the acceleration that technology mm -hmm. affords us. Um, one of the, the negative, I think, consequences of that acceleration is how quickly modes of resistance can be turned into a consumer good, mm -hmm. right? So when you can buy a, a shirt that says future feminist baby, I am a feminist, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, shut up unless you're saying feminism, I don't know, whatever they're now selling at the local store, right? Um, how quickly those ideas can be turned into commodity says, I think, a couple of things about how powerful the idea has become, but also then how vulnerable the idea has become. And technology does like accelerate that, which is why it is um, almost all consuming now, I think, to be in a social movement because you have to be traveling at the speed, um, you know, that's so much faster than the ability to co opt those ideas. And I do think the capitalist industries have become very good at extracting the brand from the work and then selling it back to you. I think because many of us, because again, it is hard. It's very hard to live your ideal, your ideals. It is harder when you have to live it in a society that's benefiting from all that global inequality because you almost have to live it um, alone, you know, when there isn't like this big active sort of social movement or community around you. Um, it is hard to make all of the right anti-capitalist choices. And in fact, sometimes it's impossible. I mean, frankly, I'm not going to eat sometimes if Amazon doesn't bring me my food, right? Like, and I don't know how feminist it is to die from hunger because I need to wait for the good worker cooperative grocery store to open tomorrow at 8 a.m. It's hard. 
Yeah. It is difficult to make those decisions, but that is also by design. But then the point is that our individual decisions in that way can't then be feminism. It can't be what I buy. Yeah. It can't be who I support uh, as a CEO or something like that. I do think it has to be about the actions that one takes because the actions are the part that actually can't be easily commodified. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. You're listening to 3CR, the time 7.25, and we were just listening there to the conference, uh, uh, sorry, a panel discussion from the Broadside Conference last year, uh, Rage Against the Machine, Feminism and Capitalism. And thanks so much for bringing that. I didn't get to that session, and uh, I just loved extracting the brand, the way capitalism extracts the brand from the work and sells it back to us. And, And I kind of remember Virginia Slim's cigarettes, they used to have the slogan, you've come a long way, baby. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah talk about, I mean, That's I just love that. Yeah, it was quite a co-option, <laughs> selling addiction to nicotine, <laughs> somehow freedom. Very interesting. Okay. That was, that was a, quite a long time ago now, but, it, yeah, it continues to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it certainly got me thinking. The conference yeah. I've been wanting to right. play it for a while. And, um, yeah, next up we're going to listen to a chat with uh, Dr. John Bridges. She spoke with Claudia last week. Dr. Donna Bridges is a sociologist from Charles Sturt University, Bathurst in New South Wales. She's an expert in gender in the workplace and over the years has looked inside a number of male-dominated industries to see exactly how being male or female plays out. And a warning, this interview does contain material concerning mental health and suicide that may be distressing for some listeners. If this type of content is a trigger for you, please tune out for the next 15 minutes. Welcome, Donna. Thank you for speaking to me on 3CR. Thank you for having me. Donna, you have explored workplace gender in a number of industries, aviation, defence and now construction. Are these industries you would describe as male-dominated? Absolutely, and for women working in the industry, it's considered non-traditional employment. So what makes an industry male-dominated? Are we talking actual numbers of workers or a pervasive culture or something else? Well, we call it male-dominated when there are less than 25% women in the industry, and um, there are issues with the culture, but the definition doesn't have anything to do with the culture. And all three of these industries have extremely low numbers of women, much lower than the 25%. And in the construction industry, I believe it's as low as 1% to 3%. It depends what occupations you're talking about in construction. If we lump all women working in construction together, you hit around 10%. Uh, but that includes clerical workers in administration. So it kind of obscures the stats in that way. But if we just look at women who are on the tools, 
who are in the skilled trades of like carpentry and building and electrical, we're looking at anywhere between 1% to 3% depending on the occupation and the location. So we're talking about a non-traditional workplace for women. Yeah, one of the most gender-segregated industries in Australia. So what are the issues for women in that particular industry at the moment? Well, I suppose it's difficult to recruit women into the industry. And then when the recruiting processes happen, they're often informal. You know, when somebody gets an apprenticeship, it's often because they know somebody's dad. You know, somebody in the family might take them on or something like that. So people in the industry aren't actually looking at women as being a potential recruiting pool. And girls themselves aren't really seeing the work as something that they want to do. But the few women that do go in, they find getting a job really hard. Somebody trusting that because they're a girl, they can, you know, it's not going to interfere with whether or not they can do the job. Um, and then when they get there, there's all kinds of barriers. They're not really accepted in work. There's a bit of... Um, workplace discrimination, sometimes some harassment. So then there are retention issues? Absolutely. So there's lots of um, people who drop out during that apprenticeship period or they drop out because they can't get a job in the first place. They might do a pre-apprenticeship program and then they just can't get a job. Um, And then you've got retention issues happening all the way through the career. So um, some women who are a little bit older who get out in their 30s, they say, oh, look, I'm just sick of it. I just, I can't do it anymore. I don't want these issues at work. So if we take out the clerical um, workers and we stick with the manual trades, um, what sort of culture is around the workplace um, if we're talking construction? Well, look, I think it's, quite an unregulated culture in that you don't have a standard organisation where people turn up every day and be an electrician or be a carpenter. So people are often, uh, particularly in the building industry and construction, they're going off out into the world every day to different sites and there's all kinds of contracted workers on that site. So it's pretty hard to manage it with HR policies and so on. We'd like to see some improvement in that area, like a policy that would support people, whether they're men or women, in that environment where, you know, there's lots of contracted workers and people coming and going, where there's still some ability to determine what happens to people when they're at work. Can you talk um, to some of the experiences you've heard about through interviewing women in these workplaces? Yeah, sure. So um, some women, you know, like, that we've talked to, we've talked to quite a few trades women from different trades, and look, they love their work. They're very happy. A lot of them have amazing employers, which is why they're still in there. Um, some of them have gone off into business for themselves, and they're really enjoying that. They have a fantastic client base but those that are working on those construction sites and in you know bigger workshops tell us that there are issues with some co-workers that just won't talk to them 
or you know new people that turn up on the site and they say to them well you know who the hell are you what are you doing here girls can't do this and they're quite defensive and aggressive toward them and they report to us that after you've turned up on a new site you know for the 50th time and someone's still walking up to you and saying in an aggressive and hostile way what are you doing here and you know using bad language while they're saying it it just starts to wear them down they find it really really difficult and there's a level of surveillance that can come with that too like you know is she doing it properly can she do it you know she's a woman so perhaps she can't do the work so some women have reported to us that they they'll go down and they'll fix something and then there's another call to their to their area that says Oh, somebody come down and look at it. We don't know if she's done it properly. Whereas she's a qualified, trusted tradesperson in her own area and she can do the work. But having to deal with that constant surveillance and rudeness, really, um, yeah, they find difficult. Extremely. And what about um, sexual intimidation? Is that an issue for women in the work, that work environment? There is an attitude within the industry that this is quite normal and you just ignore it and it'll go away. Um, some women have said to me, you know what guys are like, they're constantly talking about your body, they're constantly talking about sex around you and I think, oh, well, you know, not at my work, that doesn't happen. Um, and also I have heard reports of, you know, in the TAFE institutions, for instance, uh, some fellow students being quite inappropriate with body parts and, you know, showing them to the women in the classroom, that kind of thing. So I think that's quite intimidating and scary when you're the only woman there and that's happening because it has all sorts of implications about what might happen next or how far are they prepared to take this. And, you know, it might be funny to the um, majority group, but not so much if you're in the minority and you're finding it a bit scary. So there's a certain level of acceptance of it, though, um, that we find talking to both men and women, the whole boys will be boys attitude and you know if a woman makes a fuss about it then she's a princess and she's not going to fit in so I think they do try not to say anything. Why do you think it's so hard for these particular men to accept a woman doing the same job as them? Yeah that's quite the question in all the industries that I've looked into I've wondered that and I don't know that anybody's answered it. Why? Why is it difficult for them to accept? Really don't know. I certainly don't understand why they mobilise as a group against a woman. That's something I don't understand. Uh, I can understand finding it difficult to stick up for women when they see inappropriate things happening uh, because it then puts you in the spotlight. But I don't understand the being part of the group or being an individual that perpetrates that kind of uh, behaviour towards somebody else. 
Yeah, well, we'll just hold on to that issue for the moment because I want to just switch the discussion. You have also done a lot of research into the macho culture being harmful to male employees in the construction industry. What are the expectations of men in the industries and is there a notion that they too must be tough and suck it up? Yes, I think so. And it was interesting to find this in the industry that a lot of men are struggling. There's actually high rates of psychological distress amongst construction workers. And um, I think there is an expectation that men are tough and strong and can deal with anything that's happening, the hard work, the, the difficult hours, the being on contract all the time, the that there might be other workers around you that are hostile and difficult, people are being bullied, and they're not necessarily coping with this, but there's an expectation that they should be able to cope with it, that they can be strong and independent. Do men tend to reach out for help if they're having those issues? Perhaps not. I think we hear anecdotally as well as we're hearing from, you know, beyond blue and everything that men do need help with reaching out. And there's certainly some activity in the sector at the moment from mates in construction and the Blue Hats program where they're reaching out to men and they're making people um, on work sites and within organisations uh, be an advocate, somebody you can go to to find out about counselling. Um, to challenge stereotypes, they're putting posters up, things like that, which is really positive. You're listening to 3CR, and that was an interview between Claudia and Dr. Jonna Bridges on gender in the workplace. And that was part one of a very interesting conversation, uh, so we'll have more of that in the weeks to come. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our right because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am and streaming live at 3cr.org.au
that was Sunnyside with their track Stevie. And um, over recent years, we've seen a rise in a certain form of feminism. Um, it's known by a number of names or buzzwords, uh, girl bossing, lean in, CEOs. Uh, but the sentiment is more or less the same. Um, and that is that women can improve their lot in life by working harder, promoting themselves louder, and shouldn't be afraid to embrace or lean into the system. Uh, so I spoke with Emma McGuire last week. Uh, Emma is a lecturer in English and creative writing at James Cook University, um, and she researches gender, digital media, and autobiography. Um, so I spoke with Emma about the rise of this kind of feminism, um, and we discussed how we're becoming increasingly aware of not just the limitations of this approach, but how this rhetoric can actually be counterproductive. Uh, so I started by asking Emma what the issue is with telling women to just lean in and try harder. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. We're now listening to a chat with Emma McGuire. So I think one of the main issues with this kind of, I guess, what's being called feminism, I'd actually disagree that it's actually feminism. Um, I think it's a bit more of a, a capitalist um, logic that's really behind this, this kind of discourse um, of lean in. It's just kind of focused on, on women. And it's, it's what I think of as a corporate kind of deployment or use of feminist rhetoric and feminist ideas, but it's a bit of a misappropriation in my view because it doesn't really take into account the fact, which is a fundamental feminist idea, the fact that the playing ground for anyone, particularly in, I guess, um, business and corporate spaces, the playing ground is does not it's not even it's not fair. Um, not everyone steps into this playing ground in the same spot. Some people have privilege, <laughs> and this is drawn along intersectional lines of race, class, sexuality, ability, and more. Um, and that is really what this brand of girl bossing, I guess, um, doesn't really take into account. And I think that's a huge problem. Yeah, it's pretty hard to um, lean into a system if the system is broken. Um, yeah. And, yeah, we often see powerful and successful businesswomen celebrated, um, and there's this idea that that kind of success is going to trickle down. Um, but is that true of this approach? Does it trickle down? Yeah, no. <laughs> in my, in my, from my perspective, I would say no, it doesn't trickle down. I think that um, what's really interesting part of this discourse is this idea of self-branding that's really, really central um, to girl bossing um, and lean in. Because we have these models, like people like um, Sheryl Sandberg um, or Sophia Amoruso, who came up with came up with the term girl boss and kind of branded herself around it. Um, they do want to present themselves as a real kind of model, present themselves as a particularly quite brand of professional success, essentially, and at the core of it, it's not 
hiding their femininity, whereas go back kind of 30, 40 years, it might have been more necessary for women within business and entrepreneurial spaces to actually kind of hide femininity a little bit and sort of be like one of the boys. and aggressiveness or assertiveness because that was the norm within these systems. So girlboxing is really different in that it, it actually has a really visible um, feminine performance that comes with this kind of professional, successfully, professionally successful persona. Um, I forgot where I was going with that, but essentially <laughs> this idea of self-branding. Oh, the models, that's right. So these people kind of hold themselves up as models or present themselves as models for success. And part of it, the way that they work the story, is to kind of say, I've done it and this is my story. Um, if you do what I did, you can have the success that I have. And that is, I mean, you look at it in practice and it's just not true. It's not possible for everyone to, to have the exact same opportunities and to put into place the things that these very kind of like, it's a small number of women have done. And yeah, it's interesting because it's kind of something that's come out of self-help culture, which is broader than girl bossing and came before girl bossing. But that's a real kind of self-help and motivational um, kind of, yeah, way to, way to think about the exemplary figure. And yeah, like you said, this movement, it's often conflating feminism with capitalism or a person's value with their economic value. Um, If financial success isn't the greatest measure of feminism and doesn't take into account all these other issues that contribute to a person's success, um, do we need to be focusing more on qualitative measures? That's a really good question. Um, And I think it really, really depends on the context. I mean, to try and step outside of capitalism and start valuing um, success on measures outside of capitalism is actually really difficult for anyone who lives in the world that you and I live in, um, which is really structured according to the logics of capitalism. Um, And I think that that's actually becoming a lot harder um, even because it permeates and has kind of crossed the line. So capitalism, I mean, it never has been, but I think it's more visible now that capitalism isn't just about business. It structures and kind of the public life, but it structures our personal lives and our identities and how we think of um, ourselves and how we measure our own success um, through, I guess, uh, social media, which has really blurred the lines between, um, I guess, personal and private, between business, um, and identity, and so in those spaces, we kind of work in these little microcosms, if you like, um, within our own kind of networks, whether they're on social media or in real life, um, of kind of self-presentation and presenting a successful persona. And a lot of those metrics are really kind of <laughs> aligned with, I guess, the things that capitalist ideas have taught us are good so whether that's looking classy so looking like you've got a lot of money even though you might not have a lot of money um, presenting a kind of a successful persona in order to kind of reach I guess convince other people of your success um, that you belong in successful realms and so that kind of hopefully opens up doors for you Um, so I think that trying to navigate outside of capitalism is maybe it's difficult and I think that there are people much more clever than I am who are coming up with some great ideas about how we might move (laughs) in that direction within feminism. 
In your article, you wrote that this kind of logic takes the rhetoric of empowerment and deploys it in the service of oppression, uh, suggesting an individual's success is determined by her efforts alone. Um, and this made me think of a panel discussion I attended at last year's feminist conference broadside, uh, where the writer Gia Tolentino described the internet as a decontextualizing machine. <laughs> Um, essentially saying that the internet kind of enables this, enables feminist theory to be applied to the wrong situation or justifying the wrong behaviour. Um, so I guess I was curious to know your thoughts on the role the internet plays in what you described as a perversion of feminism. Yeah, totally. I was also there at the Broadside Festival, ah. fantastic. There <laughs> <laughs> so a couple of the sessions that Gia Tolentino was in. I find her such an engaging speaker and she's got some fantastic ideas. So she actually writes a little bit about girl bossing um, in her book Trick Mirror, um, book of, great book of essays. And I'm pretty sure it's in the section that she talks about, uh, she tells the story of a generation, the millennial generation, in a history of seven scams. And she <laughs> actually calls, kind of covertly, or maybe even overtly, calls girl bossing kind of a scam. Um, so this idea that women kind of pay a lot of money to go to these, um, you can be a girl boss to workshops, like they, that you pay a lot of money. Um, and the, the whole premise is that I can teach you how to girl boss, anyone can girl boss, anyone can be successful, when fundamentally um, in a capitalist system some people succeed um, and some people make it to that 1% um, and lots of people are actually, I mean, capitalism requires people to be exploited and oppressed in order for the system to work. <laughs> um, so I think that Tolentino is absolutely on the money in terms of the fact that the internet is a capitalist space <laughs> and so lots of I mean lots of business and I guess capitalist enterprise is conducted in digital spaces now in the world that we live in um, and yeah I think again that going back to that kind of the role of identity and the I guess the um, the prevalence and interest in identity politics that has come through with the internet as a really democratised form of the media. So in the, with the emergence of the internet, I mean, uh, kind of around 2013, 2014, 2015, is kind of internet feminists are really the reason that we have feminist feminism as a really kind of dominant global discourse now. I mean, that wasn't always the case. I know when I grew up as a teenager in the early 2000s, it was like feminist. feminism was a really dirty word. I, I came from a fairly conservative place in Australia and I didn't, I never really found anywhere to talk about or learn about feminism um, until the internet came along. So in a way, the internet has been fantastic because it has actually enabled, I guess, non-mainstream um, and kind of really quite subversive um, communities and rhetoric to thrive. But on the other hand, because the internet is owned in large part by corporations um, and it's actually a money-making tool or money-making place, um, it functions and is used um, to generate income, those logics, of course, are present in most places that we we kind of occupy online, and that and that just includes 
kind of feminism as well. So capitalism just kind of takes whatever it can <laughs> and um, sells whatever it can. It's, it's, yeah, it's very adaptive. Yeah, and it kind of, um, it might put the success on the individual, but it also seems to put the blame in a lot of ways if you don't get that ah, success on the individual. Totally, yeah, yeah. All right, I wanted to finish up and say that while the girl boss movement is undoubtedly flawed, I think it does show we really need role models and the value of having a, a template of sorts for how we can proceed in the world. Who should we be looking to or where should we be looking? Oh, that's a really good question. I think probably... I mean, I've got my own kind of personal um, women heroes, but I mean, in contemporary feminism, the people who are doing the the best work, the hardest work, and the most progressive work that is actually that are actually taking the movement to the next place it needs to go in order to survive um, are black feminists and trans feminists. Um, I think that these are the people doing the work. Um, that are kind of really questioning and unsettling feminism as a really, really broad movement. And I think that um, they're the people we should be looking to and listening to at the moment. You're listening to 3CR, and that was Emma Maguire, a lecturer from James Cook University. Yes, I just think that it's ironic that the state of... Certainly black feminists are doing fabulous work, and Aileen Morton-Robinson, who spoke at the, the Broadside Conference, really... Yeah, demonstrated just some of that thinking. It was good. Yeah, yeah, I felt like it illustrated it really well. Yeah. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. And which way the wind blows. Uh, we were very excited last week. Well, I thought lots of people were, and particularly uh, celebration among environmental groups. Uh, when it was announced that Norwegian oil giant Equinor had abandoned plans to drill for oil in the Great Australian Bight. And I know we talked about it earlier, Ella, and uh, I'm sure lots of people here at 3CR were uh, celebrating yeah. that moment. Real good news uh, and, um, and, of course, for people who don't know, the Great Australian Bight is that marine wilderness area off the coast of South Australia. According to Equinor, the decision to scrap the 200 million project was because it was not commercially competitive. Now, this is kind of strange coming after a whole year of, uh, you know, trying to get their environmental plan up. Um, Peter Owen is the South Australian director of the Wilderness Society. He's been part of the campaign to prevent drilling in the bite since the idea was first mooted. So welcome back to 3CR, Peter. Thank you. So I guess my first question is... um, you know, this has been a long and a hard-fought campaign. Where were you when you heard the news? Well, I was at the Wilderness Society office in Adelaide, 
Um, and I got a tip off from a journalist uh, who suggested that there was some news coming from Equinor at, uh, I think it was about 10 a.m. Uh, so we anticipated that the only news that could be was that they were going to make an announcement along these lines. So very quickly pulled together a press release. <laughs> yeah, I mean, were you yeah. surprised? Oh, to some degree, but I also was hoping we'd, we'd have this sort of announcement fairly soon. We knew they were under a lot of pressure. Um, obviously, um, some weeks before, the Wilderness Society had launched, launched federal court action uh, against Nopsema's approval of, of Equinor's environment plan in the federal court. Um, the, the first directions hearing was uh, slated for actually this Wednesday. Um, so, you know, there's a lot happening Um and at some point, there was this. This was this was going to happen. I mean, there was a lot of pressure on the company. So, Peter, I'm curious about that court action. Now that Equinor has pulled out, are you still going to go ahead with it? Because it is an action against Nopsema, right? Not against Equinor itself. Mm. No, the our lawyers and and Nopsema's lawyers and Equinor's lawyers are are working through that process at the moment, and um, yeah, that will become much clearer in the coming days. But uh, it looks at this this point that um, the directions hearing, which was slated for this Wednesday, will will be adjourned for for a couple of weeks. Okay, so I'm just wondering if you can just take us back to the that point when the fight for the bite campaign began. Like, was it five, was it 2015? I'm just trying to remember when. Yeah, it was before 2015. I mean, that was when it started to become public. That was when we released the independent oil spill modelling. Um, so it was more like 2013 that we started started yeah. work on, on, so it's on this. Uh, it's been a long time, and obviously there's a couple of years uh, where we are going through a, a consultation process with the initial proponent, BP, uh, and we were having trouble um, you know, getting access to the magnitude of the risk, which is their oil spill modelling and, and their oil pollution emergency planning, which is how they're going to deal with it. Whilst going through their consultation process, they wouldn't release those documents, so we commissioned our own oil spill modelling and launched that into the public space in 2015 in, in, in Canberra, and that's really, I guess, when the, when the campaign became public. Right. So I just want yeah. to go back even further. So when was it announced? When was permission given for drilling in the bite? When did the government release the acreage? Well, yeah, that, that's not, I suppose, permission for drilling. That's a, a government hoping that uh, companies will come and go through all of the approvals processes that uh, that may lead to drilling. But you know, le- leases were issued in the bite uh, under the Rudd government. Uh, you know, this is back 2010, 2011. That 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 through that period. Um, well, in, in fact, mm-hmm. the, the leases were issued to BP in the Great Australian Bight, you know, within months of the Gulf of Mexico disaster in 2010 on the other side of the world. Um, so you do have to ask yes, quite serious questions around what on earth was going on through this period because, I mean, we've said all along that uh, acreage and then subsequent leases to, to petroleum and companies should never have been released in the Great Australian Bight. It's a totally inappropriate place for this type of activity. Yes, and also in 2009 there was the Montara oil spill, yes. which was up in the, the Timor Sea. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yes, yeah, so there was a lot happening around that period whilst the industry and certainly government uh, were moving rapidly to try and expand uh, you know, industry ambitions into some of the roughest, most remote areas on on the planet um yeah it does raise a lot of questions it would be interesting to see what what came out of an investigation as to what was going on 
uh, within the Australian government ranks and, uh, and the oil and gas uh, advocacy bodies, etc., through that period. Yes, it certainly would, and I'm sure you know we'll find out more as things go along and people study it more. So, yeah, yeah. inappropriately, um, you know, open that acreage. So, one, so you mentioned already that you did oil spill modelling around 2015. So that's when yeah. the campaign kind of heated up and you intensified. What others? Th- oh, just compare your oil spill modelling because BP did oil spill modelling as well, didn't they? Yeah, just well, just before they announced they were pulling out in at the end of 2016, they released. Uh, their own oil spill modelling, which showed ours to be quite conservative, which we knew it was, and we were very cautious with what we released publicly because we knew we would get uh, attacked and called fearmongers and all sorts, and, of course, that happened. Um, and, but then our, our modelling was shown to be, uh, you know, conservative when BP finally released their own, literally weeks before they announced they were pulling out at the end of 2016. Um, and then, so that, and that was after, obviously, the, the Steve Irwin, the famous Sea Shepherd boat, the Steve Irwin, as part of the Great Australian Boat Alliance, which we also formed in 2016 with the Wilderness Society and with Sea Shepherd um, and with uh, Surf Rider and, and, and others, um, had, had gone out to the, to the Great Australian Bight uh, to film uh, Operation Jedera, which is a beautiful film which showcased what was at stake, I guess, to the world. Yes. Um, so, yeah, and then that went through... Obviously, 2017, the next proponent was Chevron, uh, and they, they, were, they were pushing uh, for approval, and, but then they were also uh, pulled out at the end of 2017. So it didn't uh, take which, them long. It was just a year after BP pulled out. Yeah, pulled Chevron out. was a year after BP, but the, the campaign was really intensifying. There was incredible community work happening right across southern Australia. Uh, you know, council after council after council passing resolutions, you know, raising serious concern or direct opposition to what was being proposed. Um, you know, Jedera, the film, was showing around Australia and in North America because that's obviously where Chevron is based. Um, yeah, there was a lot happening through those periods. As I said, an in- incredible amount of, of uh, community groups and community work, and uh, you, you know, which led to a lot of councils. In fact, over over 20 councils have, have to date passed resolutions mm. raising serious concern or opposition to these proposals across southern Australia, which is un, unprecedented. Yes. So now, yeah. and now Equinor has pulled out, yet, you know, just before um, Christmas, it was announced that their environmental plan had been approved. Do you have yeah. any idea why they pulled out? Is, is the economic reason the only reason, do you think? Well... It's a very odd chain of events, uh, you know, le- leading up to that uh, approval uh, from Nopsema uh, for Equinor on December the 18th. We, we, uh, had, there was a very public statement that came out from Nopsema saying that they wouldn't be assessing uh, Equinor's application between, the, I think it was the 21st of December and the 5th of January. That's right, um, I remember and, that. And all of a sudden there's an approval given on the 18th of December. Um, anyway, very, very odd chain of events there. Um, and we still we haven't got to the bottom of it because, you know, no, everyone no, was relaxing, no, thinking, oh, thank God, you know, we're going to have Christmas off and nothing's going to yeah. happen. I mean, that was certainly what, how everyone felt. I mean, we were ready because I guess we knew that uh, they would either try and push an approval through there or they'd, they'd literally be on the verge of pulling out. Um, that, so then the, the approval suddenly happened on the 18th, which was a bit of a shock, but not unexpected. We'd planned for that. Uh, but then we, we spent much of the summer, I guess, preparing to, um, you know, to, to launch legal action in the federal court around a judicial review of that decision, which 
which happened on uh, well, the, the, the submission uh, was made on the uh, the 15th of January, but then it was publicly announced on the 22nd of January that we were going to take that action. Right. Um, and yeah. a couple of weeks later, we get the news that Equinor have decided to pull out, which is fantastic. I mean, we, we, we need to yeah, obviously praise Equinor for making the right decision here, as, as we did when BP pulled out, when Chevron pulled out, and when Karun Gas uh, pulled out late last year, a smaller company. Um, we, you know, we need to commend this decision, and we would really encourage Equinor, an inc- a, a company with incredible potential, to be part of the climate solution. So we would really encourage them to in- invest uh, their enormous wealth in renewable energy, you know, and, and, and being part of the part of the solution to, to what we are currently dealing with, which is a climate crisis. And if we can't deal with this immediately, we're going to be in serious trouble yes. in a very short time frame. And certainly the summer and the fires and, you know, there's so many things pointing in that direction that we need to act quickly. Peter, this is the third company you've seen off now. But the state government and the federal government have said they're still keen. Bring it on, they're saying to the oil and gas companies. How yeah, optimistic yeah. are you that this is the end of it? Uh, well, I mean, we're now we're now calling for you know, the federal government to stop releasing leases and acreage in the bight, and I think that's already happened in reality. Uh, the last acreage releases around Australia, there was no further acreage in the bite, and and leases are obviously starting to starting to disappear off the lease map for for, the, for that region. I mean, I, it's very clear that there's no social license for drilling yeah, in yes. the bite. You know, the community does not support this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's very risky. It, it, it's it's clear this is not a wise investment as well for these big oil companies, which are ultimately answerable to their shareholders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, regardless of what what some you know, oil and gas advocates inside, you know, the federal and state uh, government agencies might be saying there is a reality as well, and, and that is that all of those things are very much against there ever being an oil industry established in the bite. I mean, we haven't seen this level of community opposition to pretty much anything, probably almost since the Franklin Dam. Yes, you know? I mean, that's, that's true, uh, and that yeah. is amazing. Peter, yeah, we're, we're, we're about to run out of time. Is there anything yeah. else that you, any other point you'd like to make before we go? Well, I'd just like to say, I mean, the campaign is, is certainly a long way from over. Um, whilst whilst Equinor have now pulled out, and we commend them for that, we're now calling on on the federal government to not not release any further leases in the bite and wind up the uh, the existing leases, which are which are now you know largely flapping out there. Um, yeah. and move towards a much higher level of protection, uh, you know, ultimately potentially culminating in world heritage protection for the bike, because that's yes. what it deserves. But that, that's, that's where the campaign is now going. So there's still lots and lots of things for people to get involved in, is what I'm saying. Whilst we've, yes. had, a, we've had a significant outcome here with, with uh, Equinor pulling out, there's still a way to go to make sure that we don't have to go through all of this again and we can protect this beautiful area forever. Yes. Well, congratulations, Peter, to you and to all the people involved in the campaign. And thank you for joining us this morning on 3CR Monday Breakfast. Thanks very much for the opportunity. So that was Peter Owen, who's the um, director of the South Australian Wilderness Society. And I know what he was doing over Christmas. (laughs) Very busy. And now Banalori Murning Elder, who was one of the activists and who was campaigning strongly against drilling in the bite. Here's Dancing in the Moonlight.
that's uh, Bonalori with Colored Stone, the name of the group, Dancing in the Moonlight, and uh, Banasa Murni Nelder, and that song was inspired by his country, which is right along the Great Australian Bight. And now we're going to hear from Bob Pavlish and Karen Wang. Uh, Bob is the director and Karen a performer in The Winter's Tale, which is being released at La Mama Theatre this week. Uh, the production is a collaboration between student theatre groups from Melbourne's La Trobe University and the University of Hong Kong as part of Asiatopia 2020. So your production, The Winter's Tale, is of course an adaptation of Shakespeare's original, which has been reworked to explore some more contemporary ideas. Um, for those not familiar with the original, can you tell us a bit about the story? And um, for those who are, what can audiences expect from the reworking? Yeah, well, it's, it's really a resetting. So we're setting the winter's tale in a different location, typically similar to what many companies do with Shakespeare these days. So it's not quite an adaptation. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're, uh, the winter's tale concerns a, a jealous, tyrannical ruler who's called Leontes, who, who believes that his wife is having had an affair with his best friend who comes from a, a different country. Um, that's that's the, the trigger for the play. Um, the the wife uh, produces a, a child who the, the king believes belongs to his best friend um, and in a fit of rage he exiles the child to a distant country. So what, what we've done with our version is that, uh, because it's set in two different countries, we've set the first part of the play with the, the tyrannical king in a sort of a 1920s Hong Kong. Um, the play then travels in time uh, where the child to the country where the child's exiled to uh, to uh, 1970s beach vibey sort of Australia. So we sort of chose this because of the, the particular collaboration that we're doing at the moment. We've, it's a student theatre production and it involves two different student theatre groups. One from Hong Kong, students from the University of Hong Kong have been working with students from La Trobe University uh, in this collaboration. And how did the production come about? Did you start out with the intention of making a uh, sorry, what was the word you used? Not adaptation, a resetting? Well, a, a, a resetting, a resetting. Uh, or were there well, particular themes you started out with that you wanted to delve into? It was more, um, it was a little bit based on a project we did three years ago where we collaborated with an Indonesian theatre group. Um, I was looking for another overseas collaborator and uh, a co-worker was in Hong Kong at the time working there and she came upon this uh, fantastic Shakespeare theatre group based out of the University of Hong Kong. So we started with the idea that we would um, work with a Shakespeare play, and of all the Shakespeare plays, The Winter's Tale is the one that most suits our purpose, being set in two different countries. Yeah, we started with the idea of doing a Shakespeare. It could have been any Shakespeare, but, but particularly for our purposes, The Winter's Tale was, was ideal. Yeah, I can certainly understand how The Winter's Tale would be a really good framework for exploring some of the themes, um, for example, fear and misinformation. And in a lot of ways, these themes have been paralleled in real life with the outbreak of the novel coronavirus. Um, I imagine this is something you were very aware of. Um, did it affect the production of the play? Well, we, we went back even a little bit further than that with the, uh, the student protests that ha were happening in Hong Kong when we were first planning it. So uh, that, those, those student protests put the whole project in jeopardy a little bit because the universities were closed down at the time when we were planning it and um, we weren't quite sure how to progress. Uh, we also weren't quite sure how much of those contemporary issues should be part of the play. Um, uh, in January, six Australian actors and myself went over to Hong Kong to rehearse the play uh, once the student protests sort of calmed down a bit, and then the coronavirus hit. <laughs> so we had to uh, 
leave Hong Kong before we completed that part of the project. Um, we, we had intended to perform the play in Hong Kong, but uh, that became impossible because all the cultural institutions and the educational institutions closed down. So we, we came back to Melbourne, um, and the Hong Kong students were able to sort of drop everything and join us much earlier than planned. So the virus had had an effect on the whole um, way that we went about the project, uh, but I guess emotionally and in other ways, it, it certainly had an effect on, on the group. There are elements of the virus and the situation in Hong Kong with quarantine and all sorts of things like that that, that that are part of the play now, part of the staging of the play. We were chatting about it even yesterday and, and the students felt it was really important to put those elements in because it is very much part of the whole process that we've, that we've gone through. Would you describe the play as political? The play is political in that it's uh, it, it, it's a, a tyrant who refuses to listen to other people who views the world in a way that is uh, false <laughs> uh, and can, contemporary society, whether that's Trump in uh, America or Morrison's Australia or, dare I say it, um, Carrie Lam's Hong Kong. Um, there, there are elements in, in all of those societies that... that have relevance or references, I guess, that you could you could read into the play. Uh, certainly haven't shied away from that. Um, and, 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 yeah, it does give the play much more sort of uh, contemporary resonance, I think, at the moment. Yeah, and aside from these obstacles, the play also spans across, as you said, a lot of different time frames and locations. Um, was this challenging to execute? Uh, it was challenging. I, I guess it was a bit reflective of the different sort of performance styles of both countries. Uh, the 1920s Hong Kong, it's, uh, and the performances by the students, which are fabulous, um, are much more sort of restrained. Uh, that's the, the, the part of the play that is uh, sort of, you'd call it a tragedy, I guess. Uh, the second part of the play in this sort of country called Bohemia, which, which we're setting as a 1970s Australia, is much looser, much freer. Uh, it, it, all of a sudden the play becomes a comedy. Um, and then we returned to modern-day Hong Kong for the resolution of it. So uh, it hasn't been a challenge. It's been fun. And, and I guess, uh, you know, this play is often considered to be slightly problematic because of that, uh, the, the shift in tone. But I feel that by actually having it um, involving students from two different countries, it sort of enhances and enhances and improves that sort of um, the difference in the, in the two halves of the play. And Karen, for you as an actress in the play, was this something you noticed? Yeah, definitely. We have very different ways of rehearsing or just um, how we approach the text. So when Bob came over to Hong Kong, he had many exercises that we had never done before that really helped us with our characters. And um, having the two different settings, our cast is still kind of split. We don't really... So the... Act, actors who act in the scenes that in Hong Kong don't really work as much with the actors in the Australian parts. So having that separation, I think, helps with showing ha, helps with the change in tone in the play because we are already quite different people. If that makes sense. So most of the production happened quite separately until you came to Australia. We we rehearsed when we were in Hong Kong. We were the yeah, parallel rehearsal. So the Hong Kong uh, cast were rehearsing in one space and we were rehearsing in another space. Um, 
But then that all had to change when we came to Australia. Yeah. Uh, in Hong Kong, there, there was two directors, a Hong Kong director and myself, but the Hong Kong director wasn't able to, to follow the project to Australia. So um, we had to shift. And uh, with a single director, we sort of all then had to focus on uh, a single rehearsal so we couldn't have those parallel rehearsals happening at the same time. And um, it's often said that art provides an outlet to work through ideas we may not yet have an answer to or understand or even have the vocabulary to properly talk about. Um, was this something you were conscious of in making the play? I, I was conscious of, um, of Shakespeare's universality, I guess, <laughs> and fascinated by the way that Shakespeare can be done by people from different cultures who get different things from it. Um, so for me, one of the thrilling aspects of it is having these two different settings, two different casts from two completely different countries, yet seeing that Shakespeare works and, and, and the connections are able to be made uh, to their own cultures, to contemporary society in both those places. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> he, he translates so amazingly to, to different places. Were these connections something you were already aware of when you started out? Were you looking to elicit a particular reaction or was it more about um, exploring how it all came together as you produced it? It was more about exploring. I, I tried not to have as, many, you know, as few preconceptions as, as possible about the play. Every play I do, I try not to have very many preconceptions. The work sort of happens once you get with the actors in the rehearsal room. Uh, that's where the discoveries are made. That's where the really, really strong discoveries are made. So... Um, Look, I probably had an idea, having been to Hong Kong before, of what I might encounter, but uh, the reality of it when I did get to Hong Kong was it was completely different. The Hong Kong cast, similar to the Australian cast, are quite multicultural. Um, a couple of the cast members are from an Indian background. Mm -hmm. um, a few, a couple of from have a Cantonese background. So uh, it was a much more sort of multicultural place that, that, that I encountered when I got to Hong Kong. And I guess the different sort of qualities that those people from different cultures bring to the play is uh, it's fascinating. All right. And lastly, but probably most important, um, how can audiences get along and see it? Well, we open at La Mama. It's part of Asia Topa. We open at La Mama next Wednesday, 6.30, and it runs from Wednesday to Sunday. Thursday to Saturday, it's on at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday at 4 p.m. You're listening to 3CR, and that was Bob Pavlish and Karen Wang, uh, two members of the team behind the play The Winter's Tale, which, as Bob said, is released at La Mama Theatre this Wednesday. Uh, so it's playing from Wednesday through to Sunday, and if you want to get along, you can book tickets through the La Mama website, lamama.com.au. It, it sounds fantastic, actually. It does. Yeah, I've got my tickets already. Oh, so. good. <laughs> I think I might have to go and get mine. I love hearing about you know the theatre process and the way he described that. You know, you go in and then you see. You know, you work together with the actors and see what emerges. Yeah, exactly. Seeing how it all comes so together. So alive. Yeah, yeah, it must be quite a experience to be a part of as well. Mm. All right, well, it's been a good show. First show with you back, Judith. Oh, thanks, Ella. <laughs> I felt very welcome back, I have to say. And, yeah, there's been, I mean, with International Women's Day coming up this weekend, there's been a lot of focus today on gender and uh, gender and capitalism. I mean, lots of uh, interesting conversations there. And, um, and great to hear about the, the Great Australian Bike from Peter Owen. Yeah, absolutely. Big thank you to our guests today. All right, and uh, yeah, stay tuned for Wound on the Line next. Uh, we'll be back with you next week, um, and until then, we'll have breakfast every morning. <laughs>